right, here we go for real this time. Welcome everyone to the latest episode of In With The Old. We're a video podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. Uh, welcome to the latest episode of the CounterPoint series. This series has been focused on areas that Dr. Tim and I potentially disagree on and going back and forth, showing how we can hold different ideas about the Christian faith and how we can sharpen one another. Dr. Tim, I've really appreciated this series because it's forced me to really examine my views, come up with solid arguments for them, because uh, you're such a wonderful scholar. You bring great insight. So first of all, thank you for going through the series with me, and thank you for bringing your perspectives to the table. How are you doing this evening? Dr. Brian, I am doing well, and uh, and I'll just say I've enjoyed it so much too because uh, you have an incisive mind and uh, and you're very not only well versed and well spoken, uh, but your thoughts are incredibly sharp, and uh, you mm. love the Word of God. So I've enjoyed every one of these, and uh, I'm looking forward to tonight as well. Well, thanks, Tim, and definitely right back at you. And yes, I'm excited for tonight. So, listeners, if you've grown up in the church at all. You have heard and probably maybe sometimes are sick of hearing about Genesis <laughs> and the creation story and how we interpret it. Um, but as we were thinking of various ways of that we could use this series, this idea did bubble up to the surface. This is a topic that often gets a lot of heat in its debates, but maybe not a lot of clarity or light. And so that's what we're going to try to do tonight. Specifically, we want to focus on the reading of Genesis 1, young earth creationism, and the concept of inerrancy. If we hold to inerrancy, do we have to hold to a young earth creationist view? Like we do in every episode of the CounterPoint series, Dr. Tim and I are going to take turns presenting our positions. After that, we're going to jump into some Q&A time. If you are with us here tonight live on YouTube, please use the chat function to throw questions out there. I'm sure you're going to have some, and we'd really love to dig into it. I actually will have a resource a little bit later on to share in the chat. And if you're listening to this on RSS or in podcast form, check the show notes for that resource. Tonight, I have the honor of going first, and so here we are. So my basic position is that inerrancy, or a belief in inerrancy, does not require a young earth interpretation of Genesis 1. And while young earth creationism is a possible and intellectually defensible position, I do not think it is the likeliest interpretation for Genesis 1. Now, let me expound upon that. And we need to start by asking, well, what do I mean by inerrancy? Well, in theological terms, inerrancy is the strongest affirmation of the Bible's truth. This is uh, over and above terms like infallible and inspired. Although in day-to-day -day talk and at church, we might use these terms interchangeably, from a theological perspective, they actually mean slightly different things. And inerrancy is the strongest definition. It is a view that both Dr. Tim and I share of the biblical text. Now, the formal definition of this theolog theological idea comes to us in the Chicago Statement. Now, this is a very helpful statement, but from an Old Testament perspective, it also leaves a little bit to be desired because it was written with New Testament textual issues in mind. And that's no problem at all, but it does leave some unexplored areas for Old Testament work. That's something actually that is part of ongoing conversations within broader academia. It need not concern us here, but I want to make us aware of it. 
Now, what is the definition of inerrancy? For tonight's purposes, here's the definition I'm going to use. It's a definition I heard from Dr. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology class, and I've always found it a very helpful, short, and easy to understand idea. Inspiration, and or rather inerrancy, means that the Bible affirms as truth nothing contrary to fact. So let me say that again. The Bible affirms as truth nothing contrary to fact. Now, you might wonder, am I being clever with words? Why don't I just say every word of the Bible is true? Well, this is phrased like it is to account for at least two cases. First, we want to account for idioms in the Bible. So, for example, if an author says, I saw the sunrise, someone could point out and go, the sun doesn't rise. That's not how celestial mechanics work. But is that what the author meant? No, he's saying from his perspective, he sees the sun rising in the sky. He's not lying. He's using an idiom. So that is acceptable with this definition. Second, it also allows for people or takes into account that people sometimes lie in the Bible. The serpent lies to the woman in Genesis 3. Ananias and Sapphira lie in the book of Acts. If we say every word of the Bible is true, what do we do with those statements? If we say the Bible affirms as truth, nothing contrary to fact, we can say the Bible is affirming that they made those claims. It's not affirming that what they said is true. And in fact, in both stories, it tells us they are lying. So although it's maybe a little bit more complex than just saying every word of the Bible is true, I think it is also a more helpful definition that lets us account for some of these features. Now, as a sub-conclusion of this, I think the Bible derives its character from God, who is the ultimate author of Scripture. From that, I do hold four key things. First, I hold that the Bible speaks truth because God is truth. He does not lie. Second, I hold that the Bible is meant to be understood because God reveals himself. That's the whole beauty of the Bible and of redemptive history is that God wants people to know him and come into relationship with him. Third, I think the Bible speaks within a cultural context. And outside of that cultural context, we may miss the point. A key example of this might be Jesus in the New Testament. If you've gone and had apologetic conversations, especially with Muslims, they might point out, Jesus never says he's God in the New Testament. Well, no, he never says those words. But if you know the context of Jesus in the first century, he clearly is claiming to be God. When he walks on the water, he is doing that in a culture that says Yahweh is the one who walks on the breakers of the sea in Isaiah. That is a clear claim to divinity plus so many others. So that is an important point. It, the Bible speaks truth. It speaks to be understood. It speaks within culture. And lastly, it does not speak simplistically. God does not just come and naively present everything we need to know, but he speaks to be understood. He's not enigmatic or cryptic or asking us to find secret knowledge. And yet we see Jesus speaks in parables. Let he who has ears, let him hear. The Bible expects us to be engaged and clear readers. It expects us to use the intellects and minds that God has given us to read it and understand it. So sorry, it's taken a few minutes to get through this, but that's my definition of inerrancy and appreciation for the Bible. Taking this to Genesis chapter 1 and young earth creationism, this raises a few questions. Now, I grew up in a church context where young earth creationism was the de facto position, and anything that wasn't that was viewed with a suspect eye. Now, because of that, I've heard a lot of the arguments for young earth creationism. One of the key ones is that it, it is an interpretation that goes back to the earliest days of Judaism, 
and that it represents the Jewish original understanding of the text. As support for this, usually the writings of Ibn Ezra are cited. Now, unfortunately, that is somewhat incorrect on two counts. First, Ibn Ezra is a medieval rabbi. Now, granted, that's a thousand years in the past. That's pretty old. But for a faith tradition that goes back at least 4,000 years, that's hardly old or hardly an ancient view. And then secondly, it is a misreading of Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, in his commentary on Genesis in verse 5, says that a day corresponds to a rotation of the spheres. And they go, aha, look, a day means a day to him. Unfortunately, that ignores in the very next verse where he says that the evening and morning at the end of each of the days of creation does not make a day. And there is some tension then in Ibn Ezra's writing. I've yet to find a Jewish commentator commentating on Ibn Ezra say that he thinks that Genesis 1 is literal. So that's probably overstating the case. Likewise, we can go back a thousand years before Ibn Ezra to the writer Philo, who takes Genesis 1 as poetic, and Philo being a Jewish writer of some renown. You can check it out in Book 1, Section 3. Now, switching to Christianity, Young Earth Creationism, it is clear, is one of the operative interpretations of Genesis 1 throughout most of church history. If we look at the writings of famous church fathers and theologians, here are some of the ones that take Genesis 1 as literal. And it's an impressive list. You have Theophilus of Antioch, Basil the Great, Ambrose of Milan, Martin Luther, and John Calvin. It's a fairly impressive list. However, you can equally go and find writings of church fathers that don't take it literally. This is also an equally impressive list. You have men like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Cyprian, St. Augustine of Hippo, and Thomas Aquinas. That is also no inconsequential list. So what do we make of that? Well, simply that young earth creationism is one of several interpretations that the church has historically held about Genesis 1. The modern young earth creationist movement has its roots in the Seventh-day Adventist George McCready Price and his work, The New Geology, from the 1920s. And that is important to point out that the modern view and and modern position and groups, such as uh, Answers in Genesis, Creation International Ministries, I think is their name, um, their history only goes back about 100 years to Price or to the 60s with Henry Morris, who founded a couple of the groups, uh, and his work, The Genesis Flood, which came out in 61. So this plurality of opinions in church history should put to bed any claim that Young Earth Creationism is the only possible view here. Unless we're willing to say it is a non-negotiable of faith, and I don't think any of us should, I know some do, but I don't think any of us should make that claim, and Tim certainly won't, uh, we cannot demand that it is the definitive interpretation of Genesis 1. Now, is or, or does Genesis 1 have any points that says, you know what, maybe a literal Young Earth Creationist approach is not correct here? Yes. The text has at least five key points that point out that this is not to be read literally. Uh, And listeners, I'm going to interrupt myself. If you haven't already guessed, this is an episode that might go a little while because there's a lot of content to get through. (laughs) All right. Sorry. Now back to my uh, argument. The five points in Genesis 1 that point out it's not meant to be read literally. First, day contextually does not appear to be 24 hours. If you've gone through this rigmarole of, of hearing arguments for creationism, uh, you know that the Hebrew word for day is yom. 
It is exceedingly common. It occurs over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, and unsurprisingly, has several definitions depending on context. These can include only daylight hours, such as Exodus 5.13, 24 hours of time, Exodus 16.5, or longer periods of time. For example, it's an entire year in 1 Samuel 20, verse 6. So contextually, what do we see here in Genesis 1.1-2.3, which is the first creation story? Well, we can look at this story and go, this is a word we're trying to find and understand its context. From the first two chapters of Genesis, we have two unambiguous definitions of yom. So it's used twice where everyone agrees what it means. Neither of those occurrences mean 24 hours. The first unambiguous reference is Genesis 1.16, where God separates the light from darkness and he calls the light day. That clearly only means daylight hours, not 24 hours. The second one is actually the first verse following the creation story in Genesis 2.4. This verse says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth in the day that the Lord God created them. There, Yom is being used to stand in for the entire creation account in Genesis 1.1-2.3. through 2, 3. Unless we're saying that these are different authors with different usages of the term, that also clearly is not 24-hour periods of time. So those are two strong indicators that day does not mean 24 hours in this story. Similarly, if we look within the seven days of creation, day seven is not 24-hour period of time. Many young earth creationists would also point this out. See, normally the pattern is you have evening and morning and a day goes by. However, day seven, if you read the text carefully, lacks an evening and a morning. From a narrative standpoint, this seems to indicate day seven has not ended. God is still in his day of rest. Interestingly, this is the exact point that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter four picks up and talks about trying to enter into that day of rest. If day seven then lasts from the creation event to now, it is most certainly not 24 hours, a uh, 24 hour period of time. Finally, before we move on to the second point, you'll sometimes hear that Yom, when paired with a number or an ordinal, always means 24 hours. Unfortunately, this is not the case. Hosea 6.2 is clearly poetic and uses yom with an ordinal twice. So that is not a clinching argument as it is sometimes presented. Now, beyond simply a day, we have a couple other odd indicators in this text. So second, we can point out that evening and morning is an odd expression to talk about a day. The phrase you could also render as sunset to sunrise. But if we're thinking about it, that only encapsulates the night hours, the time between days. It's not actually a full day. So what do we have going on here? Well, we might claim that this is an expression of Jewish understanding of the passage of time. Certainly, Jewish holidays typically start upon evening. But beyond that, the biblical data is a little bit mixed on how ancient Jews actually thought about the passage of time and the delineation of days. Victor Hamilton noted that the expression day and night is actually much more common than night and day. In fact, it occurs 21 times day to night and only seven times night to day. Similarly, this evening-morning phrase that we see here in Genesis 1 is odd. It only occurs seven times after we leave Genesis 1. And this is contra the expression morning to evening, which occurs 10 times, or even evening to evening, which Leviticus 23.32 uses to define a full day. It's an odd expression then. Uh, many interpreters, including Sarna, argues that this phrasing of evening and morning 
is meant to be poetic. It's an odd expression. And it's talking about the cessation of creative events and then the renewal of creative activities the following time by God. So evening to morning is an odd expression, not necessarily what we'd expect to find here. Point three, Genesis 1-2. The earth already exists before the days of creation. Now the earth was, and Tim, this is one of my favorite phrases in Hebrew, was tohu vabohu. Yes, <laughs> it's such a great phrase. But let's not skip past the key point. The earth was. Whatever is going on in the days of creation, it is not the creation of the earth, for the earth seemingly exists already in verse 2. Fourth, the days are literarily structured. So the six days of creation are paralleled. The first three days are forming. They're dividing into categories, right? The skies above, the earth below, light and dark. The next three days are the filling of those new divisions in the same order. Genesis 1-2 says the earth was formless and void. It is interesting then that the first three days form and the next three days fill, answering the problem of Genesis 1 and 2. However, such structure appears intentional. This appears to be organized around an idea, not necessarily a checklist of creative events. Lastly, Day six is the clear focal point of the text. Within the text itself, it is the longest day, by far. It has the most words. It has God speaking directly, etc. Um, there is a, a book, Kingdom Through Covenant, that actually goes into great detail, detail about this, Peter Gentry, Stephen Wellam. It's part of a longer argument, but they point out quite nicely that day six is the focus point of this text. It highlights that the creation of humans and disenfranchisement of the pagan gods is a central motif of the creation story. This text is not interested in presenting each of these days equally or giving equal attention to all aspects of creation. It appears to be polemical, focused on theology and anthropology. There's meaning in this text beyond just that God created. Putting these all together, a, a key problem that we're all going to face is that Genesis is sui generis. That's just a fancy way of saying it's one of a kind. Part of our struggle is that we have no other Jewish creation story to compare it against so that we can establish the rules of the genre. If we do compare it against, uh, compare it against its nearest counterparts, ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, they are all mythopoetic. They are not historical. At best, you might say they are proto-history, if you prefer that term. They all seek to address the why of creation rather than the how. The goal of these accounts is to instill a teleology in their people. This is why you exist. This is why you should be in relationship or service of the god or gods of our country. If we compare Genesis to its ancient Near Eastern counterparts, then it is also trying to do that. Why do we exist? Why do we worship God? It is more interested in answering those questions than the how of God creating. Now, pulling this all together, my point in this argument is not to show that uh, young earth creationism is wrong necessarily, but my goal is to point out that it's not the only possible inerrant position with regards to this text. I think it is an intellectually tenable position. I think there are some interesting arguments, both from the text and from science that you can make for it, but it's not one that I favor. I think other views can still fit within an inerrantist's model, but that also means there are views, I think, that do not fit within an inerrantist model. 
So what must a view hold to still hold an errancy in Genesis 1? I'm going to say there are five things any interpretation of Genesis 1 has to have in order to be inerrant. So first, it has to hold that there is no pre-existing material. God does not form out of material that is equally eternal as he is. Uh, that's platonic. That's problematic. Similarly, I believe every view uh, that's going to fit the text cannot be dualistic. There can't be a demiurge. There can't be anything that is coexisting, co-eternal with God. It has to be ek nihilo, or out of nothing, creation. That's something that I don't know how much we can get from this text. I think you maybe get it from verse one, but it is clear as the Bible progresses that is a key point uh, from the text, and it's a key point philosophically as well. Three, I think any view that is going to be inerrant has to hold to a historical Adam. This is because he is eventually going to be compared to Jesus, the first Adam, the last Adam. If he is not historical, that comparison begins to make less sense. You can't compare a Looney Tunes character to a real historical figure that begins to break down. So I think any view that has a historical Adam could be inerrant. Uh, fourth, I think any view that's going to be inerrant has to say that no moral evil events occur pre-Genesis 3. And that, I'm going to guess, Tim's going to point out, is a problem if you deny young earth creationism. I have an answer, but I'll hold it off for there. Um, <laughs> and then lastly, the Imago Dei must be something inherent in the human condition that remains generation to generation. I put this out there because there are some views that are trendy right now, one of them being theistic, evolu uh, theistic evolution. My problem with that um, from a textual perspective is what is the Imago Dei? It becomes less clear what that is and if that has any meaning for us in an evolutionary sense. Now, I'll expand upon that further if we want in the question and answer time. Uh, but that is generally my view, uh, that inerrancy is not required in Genesis 1 uh, if we abandon the young earth creationist position, provided that we have a few of those guide rails. So that's where, excuse me, that's where I'm at, Tim. Yeah, that only took 20 minutes to expound upon. That'd be a nice <laughs> short episode, everyone. Don't worry. <laughs> but uh, let me turn it over, Tim, and uh, you can go ahead and present your side of the story. Okay. Well, uh, Brian, thank you for that. And as always, you know, I, I appreciate just the way that your mind works because you, you shoot for consistency as well as a, a comprehensive understanding. And I appreciate that very much. So I, I don't think mine is going to be uh, in in one sense, maybe as uh, as long as Brian's, just because I agree with him on so much, and especially how he laid out the idea of inerrancy. So, Brian, I want to uh, start by agreeing with you. One, uh, we both believe in inerrancy as a theological category, uh, and we believe that because, as you said, we believe in the nature of God, that God cannot lie, that God is completely truthful, and therefore the scriptures that ultimately he produces also are truth without any mixture of error. And, uh, and for me, I, would, I look at inerrancy as a theological category that describes the biblical text itself. Um, so the text is inspired by the Holy Spirit as men are carried along to write it. That doesn't deny the human element at all. Uh, but the inspired texts themselves then speak the truth of God, but they do so in ways that include everything that you talked about, right? The the normal means of communication, which is to say we use figures of speech. We, uh, we don't just speak uh, in literal ways or in literal terms. Uh, and so I, I affirm those things. 
as you mentioned, Brian, and I, I'd love to talk about this more in the Q&A, when we think about uh, textual inerrancy in the Old Testament, statements like the Chicago Statement of Errancy do tend to focus more on what we see in New Testament documents. And there's a lot of reasons for that, um, and maybe we can get into those more. But I want to talk for a moment, before I kind of uh, defend uh, my position, I want to define something else, and that's young earth creationism. Uh, because as we think about this, I'm, I'm the same as Brian. Uh, I grew up in a church context where young earth creationism was basically taken as uh, the only tenable position. In fact, uh, Brian, I don't think I've told you this, but when I was in Sunday school, I believe I was in seventh grade, me and some buddies of mine got in trouble because we were skipping Sunday school to go in a side closet and watch Kent Hovind videos, who is a young earth uh, creation proponent. And so uh, then when my Sunday school teachers came and kicked us out, I was laughing. I was like, hey, we're trying to learn about the age of the earth here. Uh, but here's here's where when we think of young earth creationism, not all young earth creationism is created the same. So some would define young earth creationism as the belief that the entire universe, the entire cosmos is six to 10,000 years old based on the chronologies that we see in Genesis. Uh, some would say that young earth creationism is simply a, a rebuttal against uh, evolutionary biology, and that's kind of the, the emphasis of young earth creationism. But by definition, young earth creationism is a statement about the age of the earth. Uh, young earth creationism. Uh, for me, I think that's slightly different than an argument about a textual interpretation in Genesis 1. In other words, I think it's possible to say that the Bible uh, doesn't give a full and final indication of the age of the earth while also claiming that the word yom, or the meaning of day in Genesis 1, is meant to be taken as a literal 24-hour day. Uh, and so I, I want to talk about that because I do take the position, and this is uh, this is our counterpoint, right? This is where I'm contra. I do think that the best interpretation of day in Genesis one is a 24-hour period. But here's the problem: uh, as we think about the interpretation of Genesis one, we have to distinguish between the theological category of inerrancy and the interpretations that then we draw from the biblical text. So it's one thing to say the text is inerrant, but that doesn't determine or really even have anything to do with our interpretation of the text. Now, some would come alongside and say, well, we need to take the most literal approach possible when reading the text. Uh, and to that, I would say, to some extent, I agree, but also we have to take into account the, the literary nature of what we're reading. And so when we look at Genesis 1, there's several interesting factors. There's several interesting characteristics. The first is, and, and Brian sort of alluded to this, but I want to go into a bit more detail. When we read the beginning of, of Genesis 1, uh, we have Genesis 1-1, which of course says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis 1-2, and behold, the earth was uh, void and formless. And then in Genesis 1-3, we have the beginning of the days of creation. Well, what's interesting, and this is, this is uh, a little bit in the weeds, but it's very important. It's very interesting that Genesis 1, 1, and 2 follow a different Hebrew grammatical structure than Genesis 1, 3. 
And the reason that's important is because uh, it's intentional. And, and this use of this particular Hebrew structure, again, is not determinative of what the word yom means in the text, but it does mean that something new grammatically begins in Genesis 1-3, and the author is intentionally beginning it there. And so even that in and of itself, and, and the technical name for this is the start of the Vayiktol mainline that begins in Genesis 1-3, that textual consideration, right? That grammatical consideration at least at least alerts us to the fact that something new is beginning in Genesis one three. As Brian mentioned, uh, the earth is already created at that point. Now that's where some people look at that and say, "Well, is there a gap here? Or is there an age? Or is there you know what's going on there?" And again, I don't think that's determinative from say like a scientific standpoint, but I think it's an important feature to point out. Uh, and that, by the way, is acknowledged by anyone who who reads the text in Hebrew. That's something that younger creationists, old Earth creationists, evolution, uh, you know, theistic evolutionists, everyone agrees that that is a grammatical feature of the text. The disagreement is on its significance. Um, but once we get into Genesis one three, and then we get all the way to the end of the unit in, in the beginning of Genesis two, what we have is uh, several instances where the word yom or day is used. Now, Brian, uh, I am in total agreement with him. When we see, for instance, uh, the word day used in Genesis four, it's very obvious that that is not uh, a twenty-four hour solar day. Um, also, and this was interesting, I hadn't really thought about this, and I'm, I'm processing it even as Brian mentioned it, you have, uh, is it 116 or 117, where you have the mention of day, where uh, the, there was light, and there was day, and then there was uh, evening, and there was darkness, or there was night. Uh, so that's interesting, too. I, I can agree with that, that that doesn't mean 24-hour day, because it's only referring to the period where there's light in the sky. Uh, so that's fascinating. I've already learned something. But the question that we have to ask is, and this is what Brian was arguing, and this is where we would disagree, the question is, what does day mean? Day means something in this text. And as Brian mentioned, the semantic domain or the semantic range of day uh, is about as broad as it could possibly be. And what we can't do is say, okay, well, let's just chalk up, you know, if there's 800 instances of day in the Old Testament, let's just put all 800 instances in whichever one of those has the most. Well, that's the most likely meaning in Genesis 1. We can't do that because that would be actually a linguistic fallacy. Uh, in the same way that if we use the word run in English, it totally depends on what we're what context we're talking about. If we're at a track meet, run means one thing. If we're at a baseball game, it means another thing. Uh, so we have to understand the context of Genesis 1. And here's where uh, I'll just throw out a few things before we get to the Q&A. Here's why I think the most likely meaning in Genesis 1 is a 24-hour day. Uh, the phrase evening and morning, whatever we make of that, and Brian gave some very interesting options, some different opinions, whatever we make of that, it does seem to indicate a measure of time. So there was evening and there was morning day one, or the first day, depending on the translations, right? So that evening and morning formula, as odd as it may be, and even as it may contrast with other descriptions of uh, solar day, it is an indication of time, at which point I look at that evening and morning formula, I look at the word day, and I think, okay, this is obviously describing some period of time, and to me, the most likely uh, 
period of time it's describing is 24 hours. Uh, and here's some of the reasons why. Later texts, such as Exodus 20, so here we're talking about the Ten Commandments, it points to the seven-day structure of creation as a backdrop or as reasoning for why we take a rest on the seventh day for the Sabbath. So the Lord your God created the world in six days, on the seventh day he rested, therefore you are to rest on the seventh day. Now, that argument isn't foolproof, right? Because it could be that these days are revelatory days, or it could be that it's just pointing uh, back to uh, something that's more symbolic in nature. But at least what we see in Exodus 20 is that it's, it's meant to be taken as a literal rest on a literal seventh day, which points us back to the very strong possibility that that is its meaning in Genesis 1. Um, and here's where, here's where I think for me uh, the, the biggest, the, the weightiest, I should say, argument comes. And Brian, we may disagree about this. I, I'd love to talk about it more. But as I look at Genesis chapter 1, all of those literary features that Brian talked about are absolutely true. We have day one, uh, day two that course, or I'm sorry, day one corresponds with day four, day two with day five, day three with day six. You have the creation, you have sort of the 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 creation of of these things, both the earth, the sky, the seas, and and all the rest. Then you have the filling of them. Okay, so you have form and filling. Absolutely, there's a literary structure to this. Um, but I don't think that anything in either the grammar or the language or the structure of Genesis 1 leads us to consider it as something fundamentally different from what we see in Genesis 2 through 11. Uh, Genesis 2 through 11, I think, assumes and builds upon what we see in Genesis 1. And I look at Genesis 2 through 11, and I believe that is meant to be taken as straightforward historical narrative. And this is where uh, Brian mentioned that when we compare both Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 through 11 with some of its ancient Near Eastern neighbors, that we would look at those and describe those other creation accounts as mythopoetic. Brian, it was interesting. I had someone in the church earlier this week that texted me and said, hey, have you ever heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? And I said, yeah, I have. And uh, he said, well, what do you think about this? And so we had a great discussion. Um, so obviously those other accounts of creation exist. We would classify them as mythopoetic. But here's where I, I, I look at those and I say, okay, we would classify them that way, but would those people who looked at those texts, would they have seen them as either myth or poetic in the sense of not believing that they describe actual events? And that's where, for me, I look at other cultures, and I do think that they believe those were actual events. Uh, in a similar way where um, we look at uh, people things that we would say are mythological, say Greco-Roman myths uh, or other creation accounts. And for the cultures uh, that, that produce those, I think they saw those as straight, rather straightforward descriptions of events that actually happened. Yes, just like the Hebrews, I think they describe that in very structured and meaningful ways, in particular ways, uh, but I do think that they looked at those as a description of how the, the cosmos came into being. So, because I don't see a significant genre shift at the end of, of Genesis 2-3, we can just say Genesis 1 for short, because I don't see a major genre shift at that point, I take it to be essentially the same genre historical narrative as the rest of Genesis 2 through 11. And therefore, the genre becomes incredibly important in determining the meaning of particular words, which is why I think Genesis 1 speaks of uh, the word day in a straightforward 
uh, I, I would say, even literal way. Now, of course, there's a basic problem with this uh, that I want to point out. The sun wasn't created until day four, right? Uh, so I don't think it's even right to talk about solar days if we are going to take it at least somewhat literally. But of course, all you need for a day is the idea of a rotating earth uh, in a source of light. And of course, God did create light on day one. Uh, but my argument basically comes down to the genre of Genesis 1. I think it is taken to be uh, meant to be taken as narrative. All of the other literary features are important in understanding it, but at least then as we look at the meaning of the word yom, I think we're meant to, to take it as we do in other narratives uh, where it describes a 24-hour period. But again, I want to come back to this. That is an interpretive conclusion as it relates to Genesis 1. That has nothing to do with the nature of inerrancy itself as a theological category. And of course, and, and this is something that, Brian, I, I'm looking forward to talking to too, we don't Excellent. interpret Thank Genesis 1. Thank you, Dr. 1. Tim, for those uh, thoughts and ideas. Yeah. Um, sorry, you had stopped, but I wasn't sure. Are you done? Well, uh, basically, I'm, it, it, I just wanted to make the last point that this doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Post, mm, especially yeah. post-Darwin, these things are incredibly important because as we think about, like you said, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? A lot of people say, well, throw out the literal Genesis 1, and then you lose the whole battle. And I honestly don't believe that's true either. So I look forward to talking about that in the Q&A. And looks like I did take as long as you, Brian. So congratulations <laughs> to me. <laughs> there you go. Well done. All right, Tim, thank you so much for that. Really good defense, really good outlining uh, of the Young Earth Creationist position, some good reasons, some uh, good challenges, too. Uh, if you were to reject that reading, you, you do invite some difficult problems vis-a-vis uh, -vis Genesis 2 through 11. So looking forward to getting into that chat. Uh, go ahead and jump in, start putting in your questions uh, if you want us going back and forth. Uh, at the end of our time, and I'm saying this now, Tim, so you can help me remember in case I forget. Um, I have an article that I'm going to share in the chat uh, by Vern Poitries. So if you've mm -hmm. never come to Genesis 1 and you're kind of unaware of some of the basic interpretive positions people can take, um, Dr. Vern Poitries published an article on the Gospel Coalition several years back where he just gives a quick, here's the view, here's a paragraph description of it, here's a paragraph of the critical problem it faces. Because this is an a topic where I say you have to pick your dance. Um, every view has like a thorny question that you have to address. Um, and so I think it's very helpful. So I'll post that at the end to give maybe some more context for those who want to keep going forward. Uh, but for now, let's go ahead and jump into uh, the question and answer. And Dr. Tim, I'll let you yeah. go first. What would you like to open with? So, Brian, here's, here's what I want to start with. Would you reject my uh, description of mythopoetic creation stories, do you think that other cultures would have seen those as straightforward accounts, or do you think that they were aware or would have believed that they were, that they were mythical or poetic? Yes. So okay. um, something that I, I think is very important for me is that our understanding of history as a concept Mm -hmm. dates back to Greco-Roman times. Before that, we have to be careful on what we assume people meant when they wrote history. Uh, their conception of history, and even the Greeks and Romans, we need to be careful when we read their histories, they had no problem inventing speeches. 
uh, and put it on the lips uh, of famous figures to kind of uh, elucidate stories. Mm-hmm. Um, something that is very helpful for me, Othmar Keel wrote a book about symbolism in the ancient Near Eastern world, which has nothing to do with Genesis 1, but here, here's why I, I bring it up. He went and looked at the iconography of Egypt as an understanding of their culture, understanding of their appreciation of what came before, of the telling of stories. And he pointed out something quite interesting. The Egyptians, like many peoples, right, think that their gods reside on the tops of mountains. That I think after, uh, we've already talked about this on a previous episode. Right. If the Garden of Eden's on the top of a mountain, I think that actually is remembered history. That makes sense. Anyway, they thought their gods lived on the tops of mountains, as do the Greeks, as do the Romans. But they also knew if you walked to the top of the mountain, you wouldn't see the gods there. They had this ability to have a both and that the supernatural mystical realm is present and real in the real world. But it may not correspond to what you and I can physically see with our senses. And they saw no basic conflict with that. So Mm -hmm. on the one hand, I do think you can look at these cultures and they go, they think this is our origin story. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that they would go back and go, this is events as they unfolded in a modern historical sense. I don't think that's a category of thought they would have had. When I look at Genesis 1 then, uh, and even 2 through 11, um, I I like the term proto-history. I don't like using the term myth in relation to the Bible that's too open to misinterpretation. I do like Mm -hmm. the idea of proto-history. It is trying to communicate what happened, um, but it is more interested in the why. Why do we exist? Why is the world the way it is? Mm-hmm. It's much more interested in that than the how. The how is a modern question. It is an enlightenment question. It is not a question the text, I think, seeks to answer. It may answer it incidentally, but it's not going to be the primary meaning of the text. Oh, no, Dr. Tim froze again. Okay. Are you back? I, I'm back. I'm back. All right. <laughs> so... That's really interesting, Brian, because it, it like when I look especially at creation accounts and and you uh, see things like uh, the creation of human beings out of out of dirt or blood of gods or something like that, or you have the slaying of a of a particular you know uh, demigod that becomes you know their carcass becomes the the surface of the earth or those kinds of things. Um, so to me, those are a little bit more difficult than. Okay, we understand the symbolism of mountains where you can go up to the top and you can see the gods don't live there. I, I at least have not seen anything, and I'd, I'd welcome being corrected by this, and maybe I should go look at that work you mentioned. Uh, because to me, uh, at least some of those origin stories, I don't know uh, that there, to me, is a convincing reason not to think that those cultures would have seen those as actually being a physical truth. Um, but I'm, but I'm open to correction on that. I'd love to, to go look at that work. And, uh, so Brian, what, what question do you have for me? Sure. So, um, let's start here. (laughs) Is part of our argument anachronistic in the first place? Does Mm. any ancient people have a concept of a 24 hour period of time? Mm. Yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, in in the sense of hours, as in ticking seconds that then go into minutes, that then go into uh, hours, uh, I don't think so. But that's where for for 
the purposes of Genesis 1, I don't think we have to even say 24 hours so much as we do say it's a period of light and darkness that's continuous uh, in our experience. So 24 hours, I'm using that for our purposes, but I'm willing to grant okay. absolutely that that's anachronistic. Yeah, no, and I, I thought you would. I just wanted us to make sure we clarify that um, yeah. because here's the real question I have. Isn't a day-night cycle the most basic fundamental division in human experience? If you are looking to talk about a story where things are partitioned into nice, easy-to-digest units that separate one from another, yeah. wouldn't day be a very easy-to-grab reference, even if you don't mean 24 hours? Mm. Yeah, I I think the answer to that's yes. Um, although I would say that that's not determinative for the usage in Genesis one. You know, uh, to me, the heart of our disagreement is whether or not the phrase "evening" and "morning" does denote a physical period of time. Uh, which, again, to me, I just don't see any of the descriptors or even the other descriptors of day and day or night and night or the others that you mentioned. I look at evening and morning. Uh, and think, okay, that's obviously meant to describe a period of time uh, for especially the first readers, the original audience. Uh, they would have had a concept of time that was related to, at that at their point, a sunrise-sunset period. Um, and so I look at that and think that's how they most likely would have read Genesis 1. Okay, but why not do evening to evening, uh, sunset to sunset, sunrise to sunrise? You're, you're mm -hmm. doing two periods of time that are the closest together. Uh, we have mm -hmm. words for afternoon. We have words for day, and yet we don't use those. We use basically both ends of the of the sun going away and coming back. That seems yeah. like an. I guess that's one of the things that jumps out to me. I'm like, that's an odd way to couch talking about a full uh, calendar day or solar day or however we want to uh, discuss that. Yeah, I I, I think for me, um, Brian. When I think of Genesis 1, and this is where you mentioned that it's sui generis, it's one of a kind. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually helpful in, in answering questions, well, why didn't it describe it like this, or why didn't it describe it like that? Like, when you look at the structure of Genesis 1, it's not poetry, but it's about as close as you can get to poetry without being poetry, right? This is why, you know, scholars describe it as high prose, um, or, you know, it's obviously structured. At which point, I think even the, uh, the the function of the words that are used are in part to preserve uh, the beauty of it. And so uh, that's where, again, I'm looking at it not from the standpoint of, well, there are other words that could more accurately describe this phenomenon, but hey, these are the words that were chosen for their beauty, you know, even for homophonic reasons, uh, or mm -hmm. not homophonic reasons, but just reasons of, of the beauty of their sound. Um, and so I, you know, I look at that and think, well, yeah, they could have used other things, but it's, it's in one sense to me, uh, of a similar type of question. Well, why didn't it stop at day six and then describe, say the creation of the man and woman as Genesis two does? Well, it's because there's a very clear, uh, there's a very clear, purpose that the author is trying to do and structuring it the way he does. And so at least, you know, for stylistic or even for clarity reasons, I, I don't want to look at the author and say, well, if you wanted to use this, you could have used another word. Well, I think you would look at that and say, well, that would have messed up the beauty and the artistry even of Genesis 1. Okay. Um, 
I, I mean, we both definitely agree the words are important. Um, and that's, that's kind of why I'm wondering, like, why did we not use these? Obviously, it is an unanswerable question. Right. Um, but I, I do then ask the question and go, does this indicate that we are, is this right. the author indicating that these are not 24-hour periods of time? Um, right. Similarly, would you take day seven as, is day seven different than the other six days? Or is it the lack of evening and morning does not matter? Yeah, I, I think, again, the climax is in, in day six, and there's a lot of literary reasons why we see that. Um, then in day seven, I think that part of the literary emphasis is to set day seven apart. Um, and as you mentioned, one very plausible explanation for that is to say that the, you know, the shalom or the goodness of creation is continuous, uh, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, the evening morning cycle is unnecessary. It's also, I think, to look at and say the simplicity of day seven. It's complete. Therefore, we don't need to rehash the description of it uh, because it doesn't, it doesn't include anything in creation, right? It doesn't cl- include any created act itself. Uh, and so I think there are some other reasons why evening day is just not necessary because it would almost, it would almost uh, diminish the, the completion of it. Um, yeah, so that's that's at least how I would approach that question. Um, okay. Yeah. All right, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so Brian, tell me what you think of the Vayiktol formula starting in Genesis one three. I mean, is that significant for you in terms of uh, it looking at Genesis one one and two as a totally different description, and then we start fresh in Genesis one three? How would you read that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So um, this is important, and I think actually it pushes us to a non-literal reading of the text. So mm-hmm. verse 1 is the thesis statement of the book. It's going to be the thesis statement of the creation stories. In the beginning, God created. Mm-hmm. Full stop. That's an important point. That is the the start of Israelite theology. That's the start of what we're going will eventually become Christian theology. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Verse two, then, is the setting of the scene for the story that's going to follow. Now, the earth has two problems. It's formless and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep. One of the things we see as soon as we compare Genesis to its ancient Near Eastern counterparts is creation is always violent. Uh, We have a nice German word. The Germans have a word for everything, Um, and it's chaoskampf, creation through war, right? Or the struggle to fight back chaos to create order. One of the beauties of Genesis is it plays with that idea and then dispels it because there's no conflict in Genesis. It is God speaks and it is done. Genesis 1-2 sets the scene. There's a problem. The earth was formless and void. That means it, it has no utility. It has no purpose. It has no function. And, dark, uh, and the spirit of God rise hovering over the darkness. That's the place of chaos. So as a reader, you might be coming in and going like, uh-oh, this is going to be slain Tiamat. It's going to be, you know, any of these other violent creation stories. But then all of a sudden God speaks and it happens. We go from day to night. And this is where coming back to that evening morning thing, I think it's intentionally just focusing on those dark hours because that's when you would expect as an ancient reader, maybe chaos is going to reassert its power. But no, the sun rises on the next day. God continues his creation. Sun sets, sun rises. It keeps going. There's no conflict. There's no struggle. God speaks and it is done. When it comes to the creation of people, God speaks to his counsel 
and no one gainsays it. No one offers an alternative plan. He just does it. He creates people in his image. Um, so that that's how I, I think it's trying to set us up as ancient readers of this is what the story is going to be. And we're struck by how different it is than everything else from Babylon, from Assyria, um, et cetera. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And that's intriguing to me as well, Brian. I, I think on, on the one hand, as we think about reading Genesis 1 uh, in, in an English translation versus reading it in, in its original language, to me, that's probably the most important distinction that's not obvious. And in one mm-hmm. sense, uh, it, it really takes at least some understanding in Hebrew to understand very clearly, grammatically, something new is beginning in Genesis 1-3. Now, again, whether that means that Genesis 1, 1, and 2 is a title, or some people want to look at it and identify time, uh, I, I, I really do think that it's very plausible that what you said is true, that this is a thesis statement, it's polemical in nature, mean it's, meaning it's setting up this sort of antagonistic view toward other creation accounts. Uh, and, and to me, I think it's, it's very important that people are aware of that and how it impinges upon this debate. Um, Brian, I, I want to look at the chat because I, I see here There's some, some really things. good questions. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And, and a couple of, a couple of them are about the image of God. And so if I mm-hmm. could just kind of speak to that for a moment, I totally agree with you. You know, when we talk about the Imago Dei, uh, which is the image of God, uh, that is absolutely crucial for many reasons that we have, uh, a robust view of what that means. Um, and one, because textually it's highlighted. When we talk about the sixth day being the climax, we could easily say that the climax of the sixth day is the creation of man and woman in God's image. Um, but as, as we think about that, the point is, is that man, humanity, unlike everything else in creation, has a natural relationship with God that's described by the word demut, which is a sign of sonship, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as as well as a responsibility given by God as His image bearer. So when we think of the image of God, it speaks to what we are, as well as what we are to do. Uh, it, it's a fundamental statement of identity. Uh, it's a fundamental statement of our purpose. Uh, so to say that we're made in the image of God is to say that we are elevated above creation, even as we are made of the stuff of creation, right? We're made from the dust of the ground, but we're made as sons of daughters in God that are called to rule and subdue and to steward the earth that God has given us. Uh, and so whether or not we see uh, young earth creationism or old earth creationism or something else, uh, I totally agree with you that it's essential that we uh, hold on tightly to our relationship as those who are created in God's image as his sons and daughters who are made to rule this world. And that's that's really is where a lot of the heat from this debate comes from. Because the moment that we accept evolutionary biology, in other words, natural descent from other species, then we've if, if that's what people hold, and, and you and I know people, I'm sure, Brian, who hold that position, but what they have to do is come back and say, well, then there was a, a moment in creation where either hominids evolved into something that God then, you know, 
gave his image to or else uh, they they have to posit even a special creation in addition to biological evolution that says, you know, yes, biological evolution is true, but God in this moment especially made man in his image. There's a lot of there's a lot of views there, but that's where as I look at the text, I think the creation of man, the special creation of man and woman in the image of God uh, is a non-negotiable for inerrancy and uh, for a, a view of humanity that really it stands up to uh, so many of the things that we see practically that deny uh, the value of human life. If if man is not made in the mm-hmm. image of God, it's really impossible to hold any kind of robust, objective, ontological view of the value of man over and against anything else in creation. What what do you think about that, Brian? How would you approach some of these questions we're seeing in the chat about the image of God and its relationship to inerrancy? Yeah, no, that's a you, you presented it very well, um, and so I, I alluded to at the end of my my talk. I don't hold to young Earth creationism, but I typically view theistic evolution as not in keeping with inerrancy and having a serious theological issue and a serious philosophical issue. Um, mm-hmm. And you highlighted the theological issue I have a bit. Um, so what you have to ask yourself is what is the image of God? Because that is the thing that gives human life value over other things in creation. It's the thing that establishes relationship that humans are moral agents as opposed to animals who are not moral agents. Um, Mm -hmm. so what is that? So either that is something that God evolves out and specially through just one species and okay, possible, but, um, what would that thing be? Because here's where the rub is, because if you go read um, BioLogos is the theistic uh, evolution group in, in the U.S., they, write, they have some great work. Go check them out. But one of the things they have to posit quite frequently is that the image of God is something conferred at a specific step within evolution. This is yeah. when man changes from an animal, but God now breathes into it the breath of life and man becomes a living soul. Now they do take mm-hmm. that out of Genesis 2 and they go, all right, that's something special then that happens there. Okay. Let's say for the sake of argument, I grant you that there's a problem. And the problem is, does humanity continue to evolve? Mm. If the answer is yes, you have a problem. If the answer is no, you have special pleading. Why would humanity stop evolving? The problem with humanity, if we keep evolving, is that a key part of Christ's substitutionary atonement is that he is one of us. Mm-hmm. If evolution continues forward at some point, would you not say that we are no longer like him and he is no longer like us? What do we do then with substitutionary atonement? And that goes on both ends of the spectrum, right? Is he actually like our forebearers if they are said to be in the image of God? Um, mm-hmm. So I have a theological challenge there. Um, philosophically, I have a, a question. So at some point, I do want to be very careful. I'm not a biologist. I'm not going, uh, I want to be careful of speaking into something I'm not an expert on. Um, a, a professor out at Yale, uh, David Gerlinter, who you may or may not be aware of, um, mm. raises a lot of interesting questions. And one of the big points he points out to is Darwin posited the theory of evolution with a understanding of biology commensurate with his time. And it's a decent theory. However, as we have progressed our knowledge of uh, genetics, of biology, we realize life is vastly more complicated than we thought, making it harder and harder for this theory to work mathematically and philosophically. Um, Just observationally, we absolutely see mutations in genetic code. We call it cancer, and it kills us all the time. So uh, 
I have some challenges on that side. Um, I also have a basic premise. Let me just put it out there for our listeners. Beware mm-hmm. wedding yourself to the, the uh, to the philosophy of the day because you'll be a widow in the next generation. Ideas come, ideas go. Um, and so I want to be careful of tying my view of Genesis to our current understanding of origins. Because in 100 years from now, we'll probably look back and go, oh, man, I can't believe we believe that about origins, right? Science continues to evolve. And so um, one thing when I read Genesis 1, I want to be very careful of tying myself too strongly to kind of one model of understanding that it must fit this model for that reason. Anyway, so um, my, my issues with the image of God, we have to be careful. Christ remains one of us uh, for substitutionary atonement and then some questions as well. Um, so thank you for those in the chat. Let us know if we answered it, if you have any follow-ups, because that's a really good question. Happy to drill down a little bit further. Um, yeah. Another question that came in, Tim. Mm-hmm. So let me jump in on this and then get your thoughts. Um, so if a day is denoting a phase rather than a literal day, does that mean God did not speak uh, directly and create plants, animals, etc.? cetera? Um, I don't think there's a necessary correlation. Uh, God is speaking. Now, this could be poetic, and you can go, hey, even the Bible takes a poetic bent towards this. The Logos, the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, right? So th- there's this interesting play on words that God speaks and creates, but the Word of God is also Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So um, I have no problem, if even if I say this is poetic, to still say God can speak into creation. I think that would maybe be a testament to his power. That's not a way that anything else can create. Um, as a follow-up, it was asked, well, why would he need additional time? Key point is God doesn't even need seven days, right? Mm. Tim and I would be in full agreement. God could snap his fingers and boom, everything's full done, full in. So the question is, whatever time frame he took, why did he take that time frame? In six mm-hmm. days, that would certainly be a testament to his power. Um, if it's longer periods of time, that's no diminishing of his power. We appreciate as humans artistry that takes time. The great works of human achievement of art, of architecture, we appreciate in part because we know that was not something just slapped together in a moment. It was something with tension, detail. Um, So I don't think it diminishes God's power or uh, our our appreciation of the creation event to say it took longer because it. you could say it's an argument that, hey, he is taking time. He is showing care and attention by giving it time uh, through the creative event. So that was a good question. Tim, how would you answer that? Haha, yeah, <laughs> I say Brian. it just freezes. There you go. All right, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> in and out, back and forth, but I'm back now. And I, I totally agree with you, Brian. You know, the premise uh, that God created the world in six literal days or six seconds or whatever, like no matter what time frame we look at Genesis 1, no one, young earth creation, old earth creation, anyone who reads Genesis 1 does not believe that God had to take any period of time at all. We believe that God could have created all that we see in its perfect order and beauty instantly had that been his desire. But I actually love what Calvin says on this, and this isn't only Calvin, uh, but he says that the creation of the world in six days is actually God's, God's desire and God's design that he did for our sake. In other words, uh, for us to be able to take in the glory and the scope of it, yes, God could have done it instantly, 
Uh, but in one sense, this is an analogy that I haven't uh, taken off and flown at all. But it's kind of like a firework show. If you wanna, if you wanna take in a firework show, good firework shows take some time, right? They don't set off every firework at once. Uh, they do so over over time so that you can enjoy it and appreciate it. Well, the same thing is true. Genesis 1 is designed to help us understand the glory of God in creation, which is, again, why specific features of it are pointing out errors and differences that the Israelites have with some of their neighbors. Uh, and this gets to, again, that phenomenon that's so interesting that the sun wasn't created until day four, right? Uh, and to mm -hmm. me, that's significant. Uh, from a theological standpoint, it's significant. One, because the sun isn't some kind of pre-existent demigod. It's something that God creates and gives its structure and its place. Uh, God sets its dominion, and he gives it its job to do. Uh, so even the, the specific features we see of those days are described, and, and here's what I would say, even on my position that it's a 24-hour day, I don't think that's the most important thing the text is saying. And that's, that's sometimes my frustration, Brian, or, or I would say maybe my critique, is that on some level, even people who hold to a young earth position almost make it seem as though that is the primary meaning of the text. Uh, and I would look at it and say, well, you know, I believe that this means a, a, what I would say anachronistically, a 24-hour oh, no. period, but a day. He dropped uh, out. Oh, uh, yeah. I so... God didn't have to do it in six days, but he did it for our sake. There you go. Okay, you dropped out, but we got you right there at the end. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's an important point. Um, let's not miss the forest through the trees. Uh, that would be my critique of some uh, young earth creationist apologists as well, that the focus gets on the, the how God created and we miss the clear uh, theological reason. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll give chat uh, some more time. Please feel free to ask questions. Um, Tim, I want to go back and push back a, a little bit on something you had said earlier now that we're, we're pretty deep in here. So sure. you brought up the fact that Exodus uh, and the first recitation of the Ten Commandments uses this as the pattern for the Sabbath day. Um, mm -hmm. And so this question is right, like, hey, is this, and this was a question asked in chat as well, um, is this the pattern of creating days, of weeks, of organizing time? Calvin seems to argue for that. Mm -hmm. Um, against that though, we have, I think at least two different arguments. First day six has to account for all of Genesis chapter two. And that appears to be more work than could actually account for, uh, be accounted for in a single day, the creation mm -hmm. of Adam, the placing of him in the garden and the naming of all animals, plus the bringing of the woman to him. Um, similarly to as what we just said, is there not more meaning to the text? If that is more than one day, when Adam finally sees her and says, at last, let's not skip over that. If he's saying this after only like eight hours of work, that's, I mean, we've all been there, right? It's been a Friday and we're like, at last I get to go home. <laughs> but that, that does rob, I think, the text of some time. Genesis 2 is a lot of content. Similarly, although Exodus 20 uses the creation story as the reason for the Sabbath command, the second recitation of the Ten Commandments, as you're well aware, in Deuteronomy, does not use the creation pattern. Instead, mm -hmm. what we see is, uh, remember, you were slaves. So that doesn't hold, for me, a lot of uh, definitive proof. We mm -hmm. also see the pattern of seven repeating in years vis-a-vis -vis the Jubilee. We see sevens of sevens. So is we both agree this pattern of seven in the creative event 
is important, yeah. but I don't see it tied to days because they expand upon it. And so I, I want to be very careful of going that forces us to interpret these as days. So those are two things I'm going to throw at you. Genesis 2-4, and then the patterns of sevens extending far beyond just a week to even years and other cycles of life. Yeah, and I agree with you about the pattern of seven other cycles of life. Uh, my point in Exodus 20 is simply that in that context, it does set up a seven-day week that is obviously meant to be based on evening, morning, days as measures of time. Um, but when we look at, say, Genesis 2, here's where, where I would uh, maybe kind of tongue-in-cheek push back a little bit to you and say, is it not possible that Genesis 2 took place on the sixth day? Uh, and the reason I say that is, uh, yes, Adam had to have named the animals, but to me, uh, especially if there wasn't necessarily the degree of biological diversity that we see, you know, I walk around, this is a silly example, Brian, but, you know, I go to the zoo with my kids and we walk around for a couple of hours and see a lot of different species of animals. Is it not possible that there were relatively few species that Adam was, you know, you said an eight hour day? Well, even if it took him eight hours, you know, there's still some daylight. And if God saves the best for last, especially in a, you know, I would imagine that he probably had some perseverance since he hadn't really worked hard the day before. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but here's to a little bit more serious. I think that when we look at day six in Genesis one, it says he created them male and female on day six. Uh, and so if we take that figuratively, of course, we could say, well, there was a lot of time available. But I think Genesis two is intentionally meant to point back to Genesis one twenty six. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I think the intention is that male and female are created on the same day. So I would just look at Genesis 2 and say, I don't think we have a time problem. And then I would look at Exodus 20 and say, well, yes, the reiteration in Deuteronomy may not use the week as a model, but we still have to account for Exodus 20 no matter what. So the difference doesn't necessarily you know, determine how we view Exodus 20. Exodus 20 does seem to talk about a seven-day week, and therefore I don't think that that's determinative in how we view day in Genesis 1, but I at least think it's a piece of the puzzle that points us to that interpretive possibility. Yeah, it is important. Um, we both agree that both man and woman have to be created on whatever day six is, a more right. than 24 hours, 24 hours. Otherwise, you do have a contradiction. Um, <laughs> right. So uh, I think even if we're going to, oh, it's been a long time since I've done my biology, but even if we go to like the genus level uh, of yeah. breaking out animals, there are still, let's not undersell how many animals, because this would be pre-extinction uh, yeah. of any animals. Um, I right. don't think you can fit all that in 24 hours. We also have Adam being put to sleep, which right. you could say indicates the passage of a day. Um, so I, I look at those and I go, nah, that's more than 24 hours. And so, I think we're we're beyond it there as well, but that's just my my rambling <laughs> thoughts. Um, yeah, Tim. So I, I mean, we're, we've already gone a bit long, and I'm sure there's more we could talk about here. Absolutely. Uh, let me put it over to you though. Like final, like questions or pushback that we should get into before we kind of give some summary thoughts um, and stuff for our listeners. So here's. Here's something that, that has come to my mind recently, and it's to piggyback off of something that you said. 
I do think it's important that we don't uh, that we don't claim to have expertise in areas that we don't have. Um, so primarily, our discussion tonight is not about biology. It's not about genetics or geology. What we're discussing is the merit of interpretive uh, options of the text itself. Correct. Um, and and that's, I, I think, sometimes difficult. And here's where I would push back on some of the apologetics that we kind of see. And, and I don't know if you'd agree with me with this one, Brian. But uh, I, I had someone, I had someone recently say to me that he felt like apologetics was in many ways incestuous. Uh, and here's what he meant by that. He, he mm -hmm. said, I feel like sometimes apologists look at arguments and you have one maybe prominent apologist who says, oh, well, look at this person, whether it's a geneticist or a geologist or whoever it is. And then all of the other kind of apologists point to that person and say, oh, well, look at that person's work. And and that's not bad, but his point was to say, you have a lot of people who are making claims about things that they really have no true understanding about. Um, and, and I think that that's a point that's well taken. When we think about Christianity, our faith is so much more than an interpretation of Genesis 1. Um, and this is where I, I do agree with some of the critiques that say, if we put all of our cards, like if we build the whole system of Christianity on one interpretation of Genesis 1, we're really asking for it to be torn to pieces. Uh, that's not because there's not very interesting and some, in some ways compelling arguments for even a young earth. Uh, but as I look at this, I think it, it, it just calls for some humility on our part that says, man, there is a natural world. There is evidence here that's, that's not always clear in terms of a particular reading of the text. And so some people want to look at some people want to look at science and say, well, science makes this particular interpretive option untenable, therefore we should jettison it. Or some people want to say, well, because of my interpretive uh, opinion, I have to read science this certain way. Um, and I just think we need to have a, a more uh, humble attitude that says, okay, God does uh, speak intelligibly. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but we also can't be blind to what God has uh, revealed through nature. You know, I come back to, and this is is a little bit of of some disconnected thoughts, but I come back to this all the time, Brian. You know, if you would have if you would have done like a, a carbon dating of a rock in the garden, what would you have found? And that's intentionally kind of a silly question because uh, when we think of you know, rocks in the garden, they would have had the appearance uh, of some kind of age in the same way that Adam had the appearance of some kind of age. You know, uh, how old was Adam on the day he was created? I ask that question sometimes tongue in cheek to people. And of course, there's lots of answers. Oh, well, he was probably 30 or whatever. Did he have a belly button? Yeah. Did he have a belly button? You know, and, and these questions are meant to probe, right? How old was Adam? Well, actually, he was one right? Day old, one day old after he was created, but he wouldn't have appeared that way. So, uh, you know, he would have had the appearance of age. Uh, so even on the young earth position, 
I don't think you can say, well, then the geological evidence has to indicate that rocks only are six to 10,000 years old. Why? Because even in, at, at its creation point, there's really no conceptual way to think of the earth without some kind of appearance of age any more than you could think of Adam without some kind of biological appearance of age. But here's my point. As we think about these things, uh, we just need some humility and recognize that, man, uh, we don't have to be experts on biological evolution and in, or geology or any number of other things. And in one sense, uh, and this was his point about apologists, kind of, again, assuming an authority or assuming an expertise that they don't have. So that was, yeah. uh, that was several things all kind of rolled into one. But those are some, some thoughts that, uh, that I just want to throw out there before we sign off. No, those are some really good thoughts. I completely agree. This is a, a, a debate. I'd love to see more humility um, as we approach it. Uh, and hopefully we've espoused that tonight. Tim, you've done a fantastic job of doing that. Um, it's just something you said. And I'm going to throw it out there. You can respond if you want or, or not. But just <laughs> yeah. the appearance of age argument, I've mm-hmm. always worried is de- is inherently deceptive. Okay. Um, at, at some level, it does seem clear there has to be some sort of mature creation. Adam does not start as a baby. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, is that at odds with God's clear or per, the perspicuity of God and, and the clarity with which he communicates because mm-hmm. it gives a false impression of the age of the earth? Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to dive into that just briefly or do you want to <laughs> say, no, we've well, already packed this episode? <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I, I think all I'm saying is that material creation, whether it's Adam or a rock in the garden, like if you were to do that kind of analysis, it would have to have said something. So I'm not, you know, and whether or not, uh, like, I I don't believe obviously that God is deceptive, but in what sense, I guess my pushback would be in what sense is saying that Adam would have looked old deceptive other than it's just a necessity of what it would have meant to have been created maturely. Um, mm. and, and, and my whole point is really to not say, oh, well, that's definitive that the earth looks old because of that. It's simply to say that the Bible doesn't look at this from a modern scientific perspective. It's not really in- interested in some ways in answering the questions that we bring to it in terms of saying, well, we want to kind of, you know, uh, hold it hostage until it answers our questions about, you know, the origins of the cosmos. Uh, it, again, the reason that God used six days, I would argue, is because of our finitude in not understanding it. And this is what I love about science. I love science. Uh, mm-hmm. But when I look at science, I see all the time the majesty of God revealed in reminding us of our humility. You know, the more we know, the more we recognize we don't know anything. Uh, it's, it's not that we're somehow gaining on knowledge. It's that the knowledge gap is increasingly growing the more we mm-hmm. learn. And, uh, and so I think that's just a helpful reminder. Uh, but that's interesting. I don't think God is deceptive. And I'm not trying to say that the garden was meant to deceive, or not the garden, but material creation was meant to deceive, so much as even just thinking about what it would have meant for there to be an, a creation from nothing. It wouldn't have appeared, no matter what we think, to have instantly been made. It would have, you know, from those analysis, had to have rendered some kind of verdict. But I'm I'm welcome to sure. uh, correction about that as well, Brian. <laughs> no, it's I, I bring it up because that's uh, as as I teach. So I, this is a topic that I cover in my Christian worldview course, 
And so okay. I have a lot of people outside the church. And as they hear these, this is one of the common pushbacks to young earth creationism of, wait, we're then given intellects to begin to be able to probe the universe. And mm-hmm. it looks old. But why would it be so consistent and looking old in certain ways if it isn't? That seems like God <laughs> has put a stumbling block out there. And, and I'm not... I'm also a creationist, so that's also a stumbling block, even if I uh, hold to a slightly older position. But um, it's just something I, I want to throw out there because it, it is something I, I spend time thinking on. Um, I, at some level, I do go, what other way could you do it uh, yeah. if you're going to have a mature creation? But I have I so, have a crazy theory on that, Brian, that I <laughs> is, is probably not worth saying publicly, but since I mentioned it, I will. Like, one thing even that we find out about the nature of time, uh, and this is from, again, we are, I'm less than an amateur when it comes to what I'm about to talk about. So I say it with fear and trepidation, but I will say Einstein's theories, you. right, of both general and special See if he relativity. Comes back. Oh, there we go. There we go. Maybe that's a sign that I shouldn't say what I'm going to say, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> when you look at Einstein's theories of relativity, the, the basic conclusion is, is that time is relative and that basically space, matter, and speed all impact the way that we experience time. At which point uh, I look at that and it, it just reminds me that even what we call a day is not what certain, uh, in certain circumstances, other people would call a day. And that's, that's definitive. Like that's not even like theoretical. Time is not constant. Uh, well, what does that mean? I think that means, essentially, as I look at it, that God's not super concerned with the stopwatch in terms of timing 24 hours. Uh, but in any case, we're almost done, so that's all I'll say about that, other than we know even that in the physical universe we experience, time is not consistent. It is dependent on a number of factors that we're only beginning to really understand. All right. Fair points. <laughs> um, so listeners, if I, I can leave you with a couple things, uh, or at least one thing, because I realized through all this, Tim had to defend a position. I defended a non-position almost as if uh, it doesn't have to be this. So just real briefly, if you're curious where I'm at, um, I would be labeled under the broad umbrella of what's called old earth creationism. Um, although I personally prefer age ag- age agnostic creationism. Um, Hmm. So old earth creationists, broadly speaking, would say, okay, we're going to agree with the modern scientific age of the universe and the earth. Um, But again, as I already said, I'm very uncomfortable about wedding my interpretation theory specifically to modern or current understanding simply because that might continue to change. So um, given the provisios I already had, no pre-existing matter, historical atom, etc., um, I'm okay with this creation story being older than just six days. Uh, if I'm asked on the street, how many days do I think are in the creation story? I go, oh, there's six. There might be some more as well, <laughs> because I do think we have more time here than just a literal reading uh, would necessitate. Um, like Justin Martyr, one of the earliest writers on this, I find Psalm 90 verse four, uh, key to our interpretation here. A day is as a thousand years to the Lord. First Peter, or either first or second Peter also picks that up as well. Um, that when God speaks of time, God is speaking differently than we might expect it to be. So how many, how old is the earth? 
don't know. I'm not a geologist. I'm not a astrophysicist. I can't calculate the heat death of the universe, red, blue light shifting. Um, these are various ways that we can get at that. Go for it. I think scientific discovery should inform us here. I do believe, though, that God creates uh, specifically, and I do believe humanity is created specifically, and I think that's important for Imago Dei. Um, one challenge to my position, Tim was kind enough to not raise this, but I'll just put <laughs> it out there because I said you had to pick a dance. For young earth creationism, I think it's scientific evidence. It's some of the reasons we brought up tonight. For my position, the dance you have to pick up with is, wait, either the earth gets super overcrowded or things are dying before the fall. Um, to which I say, yes, animals die before the fall. Humans don't. And that's a key point because animal death is not a moral event. We feel very bad when animals die. I'm not saying we don't get emotionally attached to them. I have pets. You absolutely get attached to them. But animals dying is not a problem. It is not a moral event. Um, therefore, that I don't have any problem with predation or other things like that pre-fall. Uh, I do find it interesting humans are not supposed to eat animals. I don't think we're supposed to partake in that cycle of existence. But I don't see a theological problem with that. But that is one of the challenges as soon as you leave young earth creationism that you have to wrestle with. Some would argue for human death being not a moral event, but I don't know how you can get past that. Um, so that's broadly where I would land. But I am I, I hold it very cautiously. When I come to this passage, my emphasis is always that this passage is teaching that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. It's not something confined to one sex, one class of people. It's not just the kings. It is people, full stop. They are made by a God who is orderly, who is aesthetic, who is moral, uh, and who desires something from humanity. Humanity is given a telos, a purpose and a meaning for existence. That is important because those are the things that are going to drive the story of the Bible forward. That's the things that are going to give us a reason to say, my life matters, your life matters, and these are the ways we need to approach issues. So that's where I place my emphasis. Um, and yeah, that's kind of want to leave our discussion there tonight. So in the chat, if you're here live tonight, I just posted a link to the article by Vern Poitries because of YouTube's function. It's not a URL or it doesn't hyperlink, but you can copy and paste that. If you're listening to this after the fact, it'll be in the show notes. So look for a link to that article there. And it's just some evangelical interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to see some of the more nuanced uh, various views, because between Tim and I, there are numerous different positions, each with their own kind of unique takes on the passage. Dr. Tim, thank you very much for going through this discussion with me tonight. It was a It's a pleasure to be able to kind of get some of these ideas out there, but doing it in a safe space, a charitable space where we can really push one another to know God's word better. So thank you for that. Listeners, I hope this has been very helpful for you as well. Please feel free. This is a topic that might generate further questions. Please feel free to reach out to us. You can email us at inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com. You can contact us through Instagram or our Facebook page. Um, feel free to reach out if you have additional questions. Next week, we have another interesting CounterPoint series. We also have some guests and some fun stuff lined up for the rest of this year. So we hope you keep staying with us. And until next time, study God's word and stay cool and stay old. Have a wonderful night. Take care.